0: Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. Our sermon text will be Acts 13, verse 13 through verse 52. Before we uh, read that, let's pray together. Father, we come before you again because we need your grace uh, again and again and again and again. And uh, Father, we pray that you would speak to us from your word, that you would challenge us, but that you would also encourage us and strengthen us and remind us of your love in the cross. And uh, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, uh, that he would work in our hearts as we hear to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe uh, what you have declared in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Acts 13, beginning with verse 13.
1: Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Listen. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised." For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath, And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit.
0: Why would anyone
1: ever reject grace? And grace is God's forgiving our sins. It's God's counting us righteous on account of His Son. It's it's God's patience and mercy. Grace is is God's not just unmerited, but demerited favor, right? We, We have not done anything to deserve it, and we have done much to deserve the opposite. Grace is God's special affection, His devoted love. Why would anyone ever reject grace? But it happens. Uh, Grace does not sound as sweet to some as it does to others. How does grace sound to you? The thought that God would forgive all of your sins, the thought that that God would forgive all your attempts at self righteousness, the thought that God would declare you in, in the right, that He would declare you all good despite everything that you have done that people know about and everything that you have done that people don't know about. The thought that God could know you fully inside and out and God could love you fully without reserve nevertheless. The thought that God is not looking over your shoulder, just waiting for you to screw up so he can scold you, but that he's cheering you on and saying, that is my son, that is my daughter whom I love. Look at him, look at her, look at them. Learn to walk the Christian life. Isn't it great? Why would anyone ever reject God's amazing grace? Well, in our passage this morning, some do. But it's not just anyone. It's God's people, the Israelites, who are rejecting His grace. And it continues a pattern that we've seen already in the book of Acts that that will grow as the book moves forward of God's people, Israel, rejecting the gospel. But the Gentiles are receiving that same good news. It would seem that though even this is according to God's prophetic plan. We're going to look at this a little bit this morning about why why some would reject the offer of God's grace in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, and why others would receive it. And our outline is, is fairly simple. We're going to Look first, sort of at an overview of the story and the sermon, and then we're going to zoom in and, and look at uh, the hard heart versus the soft. So first, the story and the sermon. Uh, this week we see that Paul and Barnabas continue uh, on their first missionary journey. Last week, we saw they were sent out from Antioch by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they were opposed by Elamis the magician, uh, a Jew. Uh, But Sergius Paulus, a Gentile, believed and was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, many people wonder why they went next to Pisidian Antioch. That's not, by the way, the same Antioch that they left from in the beginning. It's a different Antioch. There were about 16 different Antiochs in the ancient world. Um, So, uh, Pisidian Antioch is where they're going. And many wonder, why do they go to Pisidian Antioch next? It's apparently not a very obvious next step, but some would suggest that Sergius Paulus, the proconsul who believed, as we saw last week, uh, because he had family in Pisidian Antioch, as history tells us, that maybe he asked Paul and Barnabas to go there next. Uh, There's maybe an interesting story there that we don't know about, about Sergius Paulus and his care for his family, his desire for his family to come to know Jesus and understand the gospel. Uh, Maybe we'll hear about that story in heaven, I don't know. Uh, We don't hear about it in scripture, But they go to Pisidian Antioch for whatever reason, and uh, as would become their custom, they go first to the synagogues on the Sabbath, and after the Old Testament readings, the leaders of the synagogue ask them to give the sermon. That may seem a little odd to us. Uh, We don't wait until after the scripture reading to ask somebody to give a sermon, (laughs) thankfully. Um, But but Paul seems to have been a well-known Pharisee in that day, and maybe they knew that. Maybe they knew of Paul. Uh, Maybe they knew of Paul pre-conversion, so they might be a little surprised at his message. Uh, Maybe they had heard of Paul's new teaching and wanted to know more about it. Uh, For whatever reason, though, they ask uh, them to speak, and Paul does. He addresses his audience in verse 16. He says, "...men of Israel, and you who fear God." Uh, It's interesting, he immediately uh, begins by addressing Jew and Gentile alike in his audience. Uh, God-fearers, you who fear God... Uh, were Gentiles who believed the teaching of teachings of Israel, but were unwilling to go through circumcision in order uh, to convert to Judaism. And so they sort of they, they believed it, but they weren't quite willing to commit. Uh, and so um, they, they were called God fearers instead of proselytes, right? Uh, so Paul addresses them in the synagogue, both Jew and Gentile, and then he launches into the story of Israel. What does he emphasize in this story? Uh, He emphasizes God's grace, for one. Uh, He emphasizes all that God had done, that God chose our fathers, that God made them great, that God led them out, that God put up with them or bore with them in the wilderness, uh, that God gave them the land. Uh, Then he he, uh, emphasizes not only God's grace, but His gracious provision of leadership, that God gave them judges, and then He gave them Samuel, and then He gave them Saul as king, and and then God raised up David, a man after my own heart, He says. And then finally, in verse 23, we see, uh, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Now, the question in most Israelites' hearts and minds at this point would be, how could Jesus be the Messiah? I mean, he was rejected by Israel. How could the Messiah be rejected? Uh, How could the Jewish Savior be rejected by the Jewish people? And so, whereas the first point in Paul's sermon is, is God's gracious provision to Israel, uh, Paul launches into his second point in verse 26, where he again addresses them. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And, and Paul goes on to say that, that Jesus was rejected by the rulers in Jerusalem. But he was rejected by them because they did not understand the prophets. And as a result, they actually fulfilled what the prophets proclaimed that the Messiah's rejection and condemnation were actually a part of God's plan the whole time. They put him to death so God could raise him from the dead, verse 30 says. Then Paul kind of sums this up in verses 32 and 33, where he says, "...and we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus." Then he quotes a couple of scripture passages, three, uh, from the Psalms and from Isaiah. He says, uh, well, God had promised to treat a child of David as his own son, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this he did, Paul is saying, in a way that David could not have even imagined when he declared Jesus to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. It's not that Jesus became the Son of God in the resurrection, but Paul says elsewhere in Romans 1 that he was declared to be the Son of God in his resurrection. This Jesus, a Davidic king who would sit on the throne forever, this is the blessing of David that God had given to his people, a king who would sit on the throne forever. And the proof of this was in Jesus' resurrection. God did not let his Holy One see corruption. Uh, Well, why was it necessary for, for Jesus to be rejected by Israel and put to death? Well, one answer Paul is giving here is that only through the resurrection could the promise of an everlasting kingdom be fulfilled. You see, a king who might die is a king who can't rule forever. But a king who has died and been raised to, di- to never die again is a king whose kingdom will last. So far from being something which undermines Jesus' messianic claim, Jesus' death was necessary for his messianic work to be fulfilled. And then finally, Paul comes to his third point in, in verses 38 to 41. Yes, Paul has three points to his sermon. Um, each one begins with brothers, right? So he, he very clearly uh, delineates them even. Uh, verses 48, uh, 38 to 41, uh, which is Paul's application. Uh, it includes both promise and warning, and the promise is in verses 38 and 39, where Paul says this, "'Let it be known to you therefore, brothers,' that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So what is the promise of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming? It's the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Not just forgiveness, but justification, actually. Notice uh, if uh, the footnote in the ESV at first 39. Footnote uh, says that the word freed is also is, or could be translated justified. And so uh, verse 39 could read, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Uh, to be justified is to be, to be declared right, to be declared righteous or in the right with God. And if we know the Bible, it doesn't surprise us that Paul in his first sermon would, in, in the book of Acts would include a proclamation of justification. This is Paul's main gospel theme throughout his writings. Not only that, but Paul, even here, contrasts law and gospel as he does in his letters. In verse 39, he says, Through Jesus we are justified from all those things concerning which the law could not justify us. Well, why was that? Not because the law could justify us from some things, but not all things. That's not what he's saying. But because the law could not justify us from anything. The law could not declare us right in any way As Paul says in Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. And so it's not obedience to the Mosaic law, or any other law for that matter, which makes one right with God, but faith in Jesus the Messiah. Now to these good Jewish boys and girls of the day, this would have come as quite a shock. They had kept the law from their childhood, and now it's irrelevant and so Paul adds this warning to them in verses 40 and 41. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Uh, now, those words come from the book of Habakkuk, and uh, the, the work that God was doing in that day was raising up the Chaldeans, Gentiles, to do his bidding. And now God is working among the Gentiles once again, not through the law, but through faith in Jesus. And the question is how would God's people respond? Well, many people responded to Paul's sermon favorably. Uh, they beg him to come back the next week and talk more about these things. They follow him out the door. Paul does come back, and the whole city comes out to hear him. And maybe a bit of hyperbole, but you get the point. Luke is saying everybody's there. When the Jews see the crowds, they are filled with jealousy, and they speak against Paul. And Paul says, okay, that's fine. I will turn to the Gentiles. As the Scripture says, I have made you a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles rejoice, but the Jews stir up trouble, and Paul and Barnabas shake the dust from their feet as they leave town. Uh, Shaking the dust from their feet, by the way, that was said to be, at least, what, what Jewish people would do as they left Gentile territory it was a way of removing the uncleanness of the Gentile territory even from off your sandals. And so this here is a way of saying you are like Gentiles to us. The Jews by rejecting the gospel had become like Gentiles. The Gentiles by receiving it of course had become Paul would say in Galatians true children of Abraham. Well what do we do with this story? I want to ask uh, the question why, why does Israel reject Grace here. And I want to expand that, of course, to think about why do we ever reject grace? Why do some, uh, not all, but some of the Jewish people reject grace in this story? And uh, in, in some ways, the answer is simple, though it's certainly uh, there's a complexity to it. The simple answer is because their hearts are hard. Their hearts are hard to God's grace. Hard heartedness is an unwillingness to acknowledge God as God. Uh, It's an unwillingness to acknowledge his word, an unwillingness to receive instruction and rebuke. Hardness of heart is an unwillingness to receive instruction from the outside, a heart that's trapped in its own logic, a heart that refuses to receive correction from others and especially from God. It's when words simply bounce off their ears like seed, bouncing off a field of concrete, right? That's hard-heartedness. One uh, old uh, Puritan says, that uh, the metaphor is taken from the hardness of any matter which a workman would make an impression on, and it signifies the passive and active resistance of the heart against the word and works of God when it receives not the impressions which the word should make and obeys not God's commands, but after great and powerful means remains as it was before, unmoved, unaffected, and disobedient. And notice, right, the gospel here in this story Uh, does not have its intended effect. Oh, it it has its effect on some. Verse 48 tells us, uh, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. But the Jewish people became jealous and began to contradict the gospel. They spoke against grace. Why? Why would they do that? Well, their hearts are hard. God's word does not leave its mark on them. God's word would would mold their souls like a potter with clay, but they would have none of it. They won't listen. But why? Why are their hearts so hard? Where does hardness of heart come from? On the one hand, a hard heart comes from, from willed blindness to spiritual things. Okay, but why would you willingly close our eyes? Why would we willingly close our eyes to spiritual things? Why would we willingly close our eyes to grace? Well, we see at least two reasons in our text uh, that are true of of the Jewish people here. On the one hand, we will it because we're comfortable in our present circumstances. One of the effects of, of Paul reciting Israel's history was to create a sense of expectancy God did so many things for his people. He chose, he, he led, he gave, he raised up, but there were promises yet unfilled. When would God fulfill those? And there should have been a sense of expectancy in God's people. God has yet more that he is going to do. Uh, there should be a sense of expectancy in the Christian life, right? God, God has not yet fulfilled all of his promises to us. This is not yet heaven. This life is not all there is. And we should hope and long for something more, for the return of Jesus, for the hope of the resurrection, for the coming of the new creation. Israel should have longed for the coming of the Messiah. But at some point, they just became comfortable. They had had come to accept their circumstances rather than hope in the promises of God. And one of the signs that they had become comfortable in their present circumstances was their, their jealousy. In verse 45, notice verse 45 uh, says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. Well, why were they jealous? You know, one commentator uh, says we shouldn't translate this jealous here, but zealous. Uh, it's certainly possible. It's the same Greek word, jealous and zealous. Uh, but if that's the case, um, as the religious leaders see Paul seemingly overturning their old-time religion sparks in them a zeal for the old ways. And they begin to speak out against him because he's, he's coming in and trying to change uh, the tradition of their fathers that has been uh, going on for generations. But the problem is jealousy, really, as we've looked through Acts and even as you look through the Gospels, jealousy is this consistent response of the religious leaders when they see the crowds following Jesus and the disciples. It happens again and again and again. Why are they jealous again and again and again? Because they want the crowds to follow them, right? They 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 were gentile. There were gentiles already in the synagogue. They were their converts, not Paul's. Who does Paul think he is, right? He's stealing their sheep. He's leading them away from from their church, so to speak. And often those in authority, right, make this life work for them by building their own little empire. As long as people follow them, they can feel good about themselves. As long as people follow them, they they must have God's blessing. They think. The moment people begin to follow someone else, their world is rattled. Here is where discomfort is actually a good thing. Uh, Sometimes we need our worlds turned upside down. You know, contentment is most often talked about as a good thing, right? But but sometimes when contentment means uh, accepting the brokenness of this world without hoping in better things to come, even contentment can be sinful. Contentment may not look like something happy, but simply a desire to to make this fallen system uh, work for us rather than hoping in the return of Jesus to come, hoping in God making all things new. It's like prisoners of war who begin to create a pecking order in jail and the guy on top begins to like his captivity because, well, at least he's on top. This is what an inordinate focus on this life is like. Is this your focus? Is your focus on this life, on making this life work in your favor? Or is your focus on the life to come, the return of Jesus, the renewal of all things? As long as you think this world might work in your favor, grace will not be sweet to you. Because grace promises to turn your life on its head. It promises to make all things new, but not now, at the return of Jesus. Why would we willingly close our eyes to grace? Well, one is because we become comfortable in this world and in our circumstances. And grace comes in to turn things upside down. We don't like that. We've begun to focus on how to make the present broken age work for us. We've stopped looking for God to make all things new. Second, why why would we willingly close our eyes to grace? Well, because we think that we're pretty good after all. Grace is for those people who really need it. It's for those Gentiles, maybe, but not for us. Paul says in his sermon in in verse 39 that by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. But we know that in Jesus' day, many of the Jews didn't get this. Remember Jesus' story about the Pharisee and the tax collector? The first half of that story goes like this. In in Luke 18, uh, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Pharisees of Jesus' parable trusted. Uh, the Pharisee of Jesus' parable trusted in his own righteousness. He thought he was pretty good, as far as he was concerned. The law of Moses was all he needed. See, we cut off grace when we think we don't need it, when we think we're pretty good, when we when we think we have it all together, when we think we're better than the person next to us, uh, when we think that we've done enough, whatever that is. But remember the tax collector in Jesus' parable, right? The next part of the story, Jesus goes on in verse 13 to say, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, Jesus says, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, who is is justified? Who is made right with God? the one who recognizes his need, the one who recognizes his his worthlessness, his sin, who says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. As long as we think we're pretty good, grace will not be sweet to us. As long as we think that that our law-keeping, our obedience, our niceness is worth something before God, that is, as, as long as you think that you can use those things as a bargaining chip with Jesus, like, look, Jesus, I've done a little of this and I've done a little of that, You have to accept me, right? As long as you think that grace is unnecessary. It's only when we can say with the hymn that's nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I I die. It's until those words are, are the ones that you long to say, grace will be at best quaint. When those words become the cry of your heart, suddenly you need grace. You long for it. You you seek it out. You become desperate, which is where we need to be. Do you know how needy you are? There is little more nourishing to our spiritual lives than admitting how needy and broken and sinful we are. There is little that will further your witness to the gospel than being honest with others about how needy and broken and sinful you are. Because as others see your need and the provision of grace in the gospel and your trust in that provision, they will be willing to admit their own need and find hope in the gospel of grace as well. Is grace sweet to you? Are you still trying to make this world work in your favor? Or are you longing for God to make all things new? Are you still trying to use your behavior as a bargaining chip with God, still trying to leverage your obedience to put God in your debt because of what a good little boy or girl that you've been? Or do you come to God crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to that cross I cling. Notice, though, in the story, who does receive grace? The Gentiles. Why them? Well, Paul twice calls them, you who fear God. Uh, God God-fearers, again, were those who believed in the God of Israel but were unwilling to undergo circumcision, maybe other requirements of the law, which would have been necessary for full conversion. And so these Gentiles, they had limited access in the synagogues. They sat in the back. They had limited access in the temple in Jerusalem. They weren't allowed into the court of the Jews. Why would they be so ready to accept the message of grace? Well, because this world was not working for them. Because they knew they had nothing to bargain with. Their situation in the synagogue showed them their condition. They were not in charge. They were not acceptable. Because of who they were as Gentile sinners, they were held at arm's length from God. See, people receive the gospel when their hearts are soft not blind to what God is doing, not comfortable because uh, the life works for you, not jealous of what others have, and so not focused on this present age, not self-righteous, but seeing the depth of our spiritual need and being open to the provision of God in the gospel. Where do you find yourself this morning? Does grace sound sweet to you? Or are you still trying to make life work for you? Does grace sound sweet Or do you find yourself jealous of what others have? Does grace sound sweet? Or are you focused on this present broken age? Does grace sound sweet? Or do you think that you're above that? You're pretty good. You're you're an obedient, upstanding Christian. You don't need grace. Does grace sound sweet? If it does, you can thank God. Verse 48 tells us, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who was it who believed? Who believed? Only those whom God had, had previously appointed to God alone can soften the heart. God alone can lift our eyes above making this world work in our favor and place them on the age to come. God alone can convince us of our self-righteousness. God alone can, can break us out of, of our, our confused little worlds and cause us to hunger and thirst for true righteousness. Okay, but what if, what if you just don't see it? What if you're not there yet? What if you feel your heart is hard? What can you do? Well, you can pray. You can pray that God would soften your heart. You can pray that God would open your eyes. You can pray that God would unstop your ears. You can pray that God would enlighten your mind. That you would see his grace for what it is. That you would embrace Jesus offered in the gospel. That you would begin to live a life saturated by God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we need your grace more than we even understand. We need your patience. We need your kindness. We need you to to be long-suffering with us moment by moment and day by day. Pray that you would open our eyes to see our sin, that the work of our Savior would be sweet to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.